0: It's nice to see you today. Given that we advertised the topic, I was wondering if I was just talking to myself or perhaps just Lachlan who would turn up. So, well done. You're either very brave or you didn't know what the topic was today. So, uh, either way, it's great to see you. You are going to die. It's true. There's a copy there of the, uh, or a screenshot of the current world population clock. Uh, you can just Google it and uh, the numbers tick over like a, um, a petrol ba- petrol pump for our American visitors. Um uh, you can see there the deaths today, 110,000. It just struck me this morning, when I, I did the screenshot and sent it through to Lachlan to put into the PowerPoint, it was 76,000 people had died that day. Something went wrong and Lachlan had to redo it three or four hours later. There was 36,000 more people had died that day. And it happens, and it's, it's a little scary, I think, when you think about it, because each of us are on our way there. Uh, it's It's been talked about kind of in the classics. Here's uh, Hamlet, or Mel Gibson's um, Hamlet, and uh, in the long soliloquy that begins, you know, to be or not to be, there's that, where are we here? The great line. Now, why will that have stopped, guys? That's it, Lachlan, you might get a job sitting there, I think. Okay.
1: See what he says there.
0: But that the, the dread of something after death, that undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have, and fly to others that we know not of. It's the unknown is is scary. It's troubling. Uh, and Woody Allen's got another turn of phrase that I like. It says this. I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. I don't want to live in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live in my apartment. Uh, yeah, we, we get it. We get it. And what we've been doing the last four weeks... Yeah, it's just not working, Russ. Just... When you're going to die, it doesn't mean die in front of the audience. That's right. uh, okay, let's have a look. Excellent, thanks. What we've been doing is working our way through uh, a series. It came from a blog written by a man called Charles Pope uh, that I'll talk to you about, and the um, the way to find the blog uh, blog blog is written uh, on the inside of your program. There, we've been working our way through four hard truths that will set you free. You're not in control. Your life is not about you. You're not that important. And today, you're going to die. Uh, each of them, Jesus taught each of these things. The reason he says set you free is the idea once you actually embrace what Jesus teaches, it, it, it is a real upside. It is very freeing. So you're going to die. Uh, we all know that, but there's many different possible reactions that people have. Let me just give you four possible, out of many, but four possible reactions that people have today. The first one, I think the most common is this, is to ignore it or deny it, to just kind of stick your head in the sand. I remember a conversation I had with a man who's, about to turn eighty years old, and I said to him, kind of, as he's now quite old. I said to him, "Do you do you think about death as you grow old?" And he said, "My mother told me that death is inevitable, so there's no point thinking about it." Well, it's not exactly where I would have ended up on that particular logic, but our society does that, don't we? We, in Australia, we move death away to. Large anonymous public buildings, and then uh, where people in white, you know, uh, white coats or blue uniforms deal with it. Um, we we have a, a funeral industry where everything is sanitised. You can get to, oh, I'm what like 57. I've I've only ever seen two or three corpses. My guess, my guess is you're the same, unless you work in one of those particular industries. Even when you have a, a funeral with an open casket. Did you notice the mortician lady there is painting makeup onto the faces so we don't see what death really looks like? So that's the first one: is to just is kind of just ignore it, and you notice how popular you'll be if you bring up this topic with people. Uh, that's one. The second one is to actually just concentrate on living longer and to make the most of it. Uh, and the good news is that's happening. So here's the stats: ABS. Um, Basically, big picture, over the last 100 years or so in the Western world, the average lifespan at birth has doubled, or maybe a little more than that. So you can see in the late 1800s, the average about 45, now up over 80. And you'll notice the ladies live longer than the men. I won't go into the reasons why, but uh, that's, uh, that, that's good news. And part of the reason it's jumped so much is a great a decrease in infant mortality. Now as well as that, there's the kind of, there's the numbers game, and that is that, uh, you know, 50 is the new 40, 60 is the new 50, and I don't know whether it's just that I'm getting older, but I notice more and more of these things about, you know, enjoy your old age, forever young, uh, the science of living longer, living better longer, that kind of thing. Actually, if you're looking for a good investment, a recession-proof investment, here's one. Uh, today's Australian, funeral firms looking lively. So, Funeral Cemetery and Crematoria operator Invocare has defied a downturn in the national mortality rate to post a 50% increase in reported half-year profits to $27.8 million. Um, So, the, the Chief Executive, Mr Martin Earp, blamed a mild autumn weather for the unexpected downturn. So, not as many people have died lately, but Invocare still made money. Now, the good news is, he said... Martin, the chief executive, said, while the lull in mortality is expected to endure into this current half-year, the long-term trend remains strong. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's the guy's Einstein, isn't he? Um, the mortality rate hovers around 100%. All right. So ignore it. Make the most of long life. The other one is to find technology. Technology will save us. Okay, so uh, you can read the... Um, thing. Uh, 2013, a Russian billionaire has revealed controversial plans to upload his own brain and become immortal by 2045. The 32-year-old Dmitry Iskov Iskov, believes technology will allow him to live forever in a hologram body. There it is. That's kind of the beginnings. Um, uh, What's he say? His foundation has already planned out its timeline for getting to a fully holographic human and claims that it will be ready to upload a mind into a computer by 2015, a timeline that even Itzkov says is optimistic. When I checked, it didn't happen. Uh, This is our program for the next 35 years, and we'll do our best to complete it, he says. Now, if you're looking for another investment, well, I don't think this one's quite the same as the funeral industry. If you go to the 2045 foundation that Mr Itzkov started, I couldn't help but notice, you see the top right hand there? The immortality button. Now, who's not going to press that? Okay. So you press it, and what you get is a whole series of avatars. There's four different models, kind of from the basic through to the deluxe. Um, And uh, you just you just uh, uh, file through a few pages, and then you get to four magic questions: Are you over 18? Are you of sound mind, Uh, etc. Have you decided to commission the development of your? You can have your own custom-made avatar if you've got $3 million, if you notice the third one. So all you need to do is be ready to kick in $3 million and they'll start working on an avatar for you to upload your brain or your consciousness. The big question I have is, would you choose an avatar that looked just like you do now? I think I'd be going for the Brad Pitt model. The the Bruce Willis model isn't working for me. But uh, anyway, uh, well... The trouble is there's a little bit of reality kind of creeps into the whole venture. Uh, BBC made a documentary called The Immortalists and uh, they went and interviewed, for example, Dr Miguel uh, Nicolias from Duke University. Here's what he said about the idea of turning your brain into effectively a computer program. At Duke University, one leading neuroscientist argues that the brain's dynamic complexity from which the human condition emerges cannot be replicated. You cannot code intuition. You cannot code aesthetic beauty. You cannot code love or hate, says Dr. Nicolius. There is no way you will ever see human brain reduced to a digital medium. It's simply impossible to reduce that complexity to the kind of algorithmic process that you would have to have. It hasn't got in the way of uh, Dimitri. Uh, What's he say at the end uh, of the final quote here? He says, um, Itzkov is already planning his endless life. Quote, for the next few centuries, I envisage having multiple bodies, one somewhere in space and another hologram-like, my consciousness just moving from one to another. Now, it could be just a scam to get a whole lot of rich people to kick in $3 million, like a Russian internet scam? Who would have thought? But um, it, it could also be, he's age 32, is he really going to spend the rest of his life trying desperately... To cheat death. This fascinating story. Ignore it, concentrate on living longer, look to technology to save us. The fourth option is possibly to have a look at what the Bible says. You see, the Bible tells us um, the Bible tells us why it is that we die and why it is that we're afraid. Now, there's physiological reasons why we die, from what I've read mostly to do with the way that our cells now reproduce imperfectly and why our bodies age and things wear out. But the Bible tells us there's also a spiritual reason why we die. Uh, here, now, if this one isn't in your program. Um, we'll get to Genesis chapter 3 soon. But Genesis chapter 2, as it explains to us how God's made the world and, and where we've come from, talks about how God creates humanity. Genesis 2. And the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Of all of the creatures that God creates, humanity is the only one that we're told God breathes into us the breath of life. The idea of us being actually made in the image of God. And then verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east of Eden and there he put the man that he had formed. So God creates, gives life, puts him into the garden. And then we're told later, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. See, just as an aside, work is actually a good thing. We are created to work, to do productive things. So God puts him there. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. So God, incredibly generous, a huge, beautiful thing. But, verse 17, But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat from it, you will certainly die. I think the tree the tree just stands for deciding about good and evil. The one that makes, if you like, it's symbolic of the fact that God makes the rules. So God gives a man huge freedom and there's only one rule and that rule is God makes the rules. And the tree's symbolic of that. Don't do that. Don't step out from under God's authority because if you do, you will die. You will certainly die. Um, now Genesis 2 ends with the man and the woman in, in a right relationship with God because they're under God's authority, they obey Him and trust Him and then in, because of that they're in a right relationship with each other because they needn't fear each other because they trust God together and they're in a right relationship with the creation as they, if you like, work the creation under God's authority. But unfortunately, it doesn't last long. By the time we get to Genesis 3, everything falls apart. Now, this is in your program, if you want to follow it, or we can just read it off the screen. Here's what's wrong with the world. Here's what we why we die. Genesis 3, now the serpent, and you see later the serpent actually stands for the evil one, for Satan, for the one who aims to lead us astray. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman... Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? It's misquoting what God had said. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. It's not quite quoting exactly what God said, but she's got the general idea. And here's the great lie. He says, You will not certainly die the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good or evil. You see what he's saying? You won't, you won't die. In fact, God's holding out on you. You see what he does? He, 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 he asks her to doubt. One, the goodness of God, and two, the wisdom of God. The goodness of God. Does God really want what's best for you? And then does God really know what's best for you? And He's actually saying... God's, God's mean and stupid. That's, that's what he's saying. Is God good? Does he want what's best for you? Is God wise? Does he know what's best And he says, if you disobey God, if you step out from under his authority, make your own rules, you can be like God, the one who essentially decides good and evil. That's the, now, that's a temptation way back in Genesis. But isn't that a temptation that comes to each of us each day? Is God really wise? Does he really know what's best for me? And does he really want what's best for me? And can I trust him? And she decides that she'll disobey God. And so we're told, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So they've stepped out. They've broken that one rule that God makes the rules. And then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What's that all about? Well, as soon as as soon as I realize that I'm making my own rules and you're making your own rules, we actually need to be afraid of each other. And the whole idea of I felt naked is the idea of I felt what? vulnerable. Okay? And so the fig leaves, I think it's meant to be kind of Pathetic, if you like, almost humorous that they they try and cover themselves up with with this pathetic thing. And the next one is almost humorous as well. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, um, hiding from Almighty God behind a tree. Uh, not you know particularly effective, I think. And um, I think we're meant to we're meant to see that. But you know, it's all of a sudden. They need to be afraid of God as well. They're guilty. They've done the wrong thing. They're afraid of each other and they're afraid of God. Now, God told the man, if you eat from the tree, if you disobey me, if you step away from me, you will certainly die that day. Do they die? Well, yes. They're, they're, They're sent out of the garden. They're sent out of the garden. They die, if you like, spiritually that day. And physical death inevitably follows, like night follows day. See, let me take a step back. You go to the florist and you buy some beautiful red roses, okay? Uh, gentlemen, by the way, I don't understand why, but I just want to tell you, if you buy flowers at a service station, it doesn't work. I don't know why. I, I, I don't know. But, like, she can tell. You bought these at a service station, didn't you? Um, uh, yeah. It's got to be a florist, I don't know. Okay. So you buy beautiful flowers from the forest and then take them home and then within what, a week? They're all dead. Why do they die? Why? They've been separated from the source of life. They've been they've been cut from what actually gives them life. In the Bible, we we naturally think of um, uh, we we naturally think of death as the end. That's not the way the Bible sees death. The Bible talks about death as separation, right? separation. And so the idea of the Bible talks about if oh, I'll be straight up, if you if you don't know Jesus, if you if you're not in friendship and fellowship with God through Jesus, the Bible says you're separated from God. You're spiritually dead. And the Bible talks about physical death as a separation of the spirit from the body. And the Bible talks about the most terrible of all. The second death, or eternal death, the separation of spirit and body from God forever. It, it's, it's the idea of separation. And Jesus says, Jesus brings the great warning that if we continue to be separated from God, if we keep walking away from him, that we will be separated from God for eternity. The Bible calls it the, the second death. Now, why is it that we're uncomfortable or about death and afraid? Well, the answer is... Our conscience and Shakespeare was onto that. Notice he says uh, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of thus what conscience does make cowards of us all. Now the great news of the New Testament is that the New Testament writers tell us at a time and a place we know where we know when we know who God himself stepped into our world to deal with this problem and you see as, as the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy his young lieutenant um, in probably the last letter that Paul ever wrote before he died. He's speaking about the grace or the generosity of God. He says, That has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. He's saying that, that Jesus paid the penalty that we deserved. Paid the penalty that our consciences are uneasy about. He died in our place so that we can be forgiven and come back to God, actually be spiritually alive. And not just that, because he's paid that penalty, because that's dealt with, God raised him up. And the resurrection of Jesus means that he actually, he conquered death. The resurrection of Jesus means he conquered death and that those who follow him need not fear death anymore. Very quickly, I'm I'm going to... kind of rush through this. When the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians who lived in Corinth, uh, in Greece, uh, his first letter, at the end of that, he has a big long thing in chapter 15 about the implications of Jesus' resurrection. Now the first thing he says is this, we were eyewitnesses, we saw him. Let me show you. So um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and uh, I'll go through this quickly, you might like to read it yourself later and take your time. He says this, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, so the Old Testament promised all of this, and that he appeared to Kephas, which is the Aramaic form of of Peter's name, appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, the history of the New Testament is after Jesus' resurrection, there's a group of people become absolutely convinced that they've witnessed Jesus risen and they go out and tell the world and literally change the world. The only way to shut them up was to kill them one after another, which is what happened. Now, he goes on later in the letter to say why the resurrection of Jesus is so important. He says, and if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins, and those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. What he's saying is if Jesus didn't rise, then Christianity is just a cruel hoax. And it does all hang on that, doesn't it? Is Jesus, you know, the risen Lord who can give... Eternal life to those who will trust him, or is he an ashtray full of dust in the Middle East and all we've got is Dmitry Iskov and his, you know, the chance to be an avatar on someone's iPhone in the future or something? It, like, it's that stark. And I think the evidence for the resurrection is very strong. If you've never looked, we'd, we'd love to kind of direct you where you might look. He gets to the end, Paul gets to the end of this discussion and he talks about the fact of Jesus coming back and changing or renewing those who followed him to be like him. And he says, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Quoting one of the Old Testament prophets. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? What he's saying is, if you trust Jesus, you don't need to be afraid of death. If you like, the sting's been taken out of it. Um, He'll finish, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. What he means is, it's our guilty conscience and our guilt before God that puts the sting in, and that's been taken out. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has won the victory, uh, don't need to be afraid. And the implication of that? Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. What's he mean? Well, once you understand, there's no need to fear death, and the promise of Jesus' return, it it changes everything. So much so that my 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 time is gone. But if you if you if you trust Jesus and you understand this, death will always be sad and ugly. But the New Testament says, "Don't grieve like those who have no hope." I got two people that I really care for who are. They've got incurable diseases at the moment. They're both elderly, but they both trust Jesus, and it's—it's it's not the last word. Or, or just another one, um, like money and possessions and all—it's all just so temporary. And the answer, because well, I'm temporary, but you know what? Once you understand that, it means that you can enjoy it and be generous with it, and enjoy the world instead of trying to own the world. It changes everything. Let me just quickly. Um, Here's Charles Pope, the guy who wrote the man who wrote this blog. Um, let me read to you uh, what he says about you're going to die, and then Lachlan's going to come up and push me off the lectern. Okay, here, here we go. He says this: "You are going to die." Oh man, that's cold. Yes, it's a hard truth, but it's very freeing. We get all worked up about what this world dishes out, but take a walk in a cemetery. Those folks are all worked up too. Now their struggles are over, and if they had faith, they are with God. Troubles don't last forever. This truth also helps us to do the most important thing, to get ready to meet God. So many people spend their lives clowning around and goofing off, yet our most urgent priority is to prepare to meet God. In the end, this is freeing because we lose from the many excessive and contrary demands of the world and we can concentrate on doing the one thing necessary. Our life simplifies and we don't take this world too seriously. It's passing away. There is peace and freedom in coming to accept this. He concludes the whole article by saying this. So there you have them, the hard truths that will set you free. Think about them, memorise them too, and pull them out when life comes at you fast and hard with this agenda of control, self-importance, empty promises and perfect comfort here on earth. A simple, sober, humble and focused life brings great serenity. I'd say a life that trusts Jesus is a way to find peace and joy and confidence. Um, if you've never read the words of Jesus, someone from City Bible from we'd love to sit down with you and read a little of the Bible, talk with you, answer whatever questions you've got. I've just stolen three minutes of your time, Lachlan. Where are you? Okay. Uh, I, I can't remember. One, one's a robot thing, and one's a hologram thing. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely going for the Brad Pitt model, though, if I, if I have a choice. Okay. Uh, do we have any questions from the floor? we've So a couple from the uh, audience okay. uh, line. Al, uh, what if you're a follower of Jesus and still fear death? Yeah. What if you're a follower of Jesus and still fear death? Um, I think it's quite natural to, uh, to fear death. The, the the New Testament kind of says, like, expect that. And that's why the, the New Testament writers are so strong and they're saying, it's okay, you don't need to. Um, I've got to say, I'm not afraid of being dead, but I'm not particularly looking forward to the, the trip across, if you know what I mean. <laughs> right? uh, I just say, if you're a follower of Jesus and you and you're feeling anxious about that, don't add guilt to anxiety. Don't feel guilty about feeling anxious. It, it's like so many things with following Jesus, and that is the more that you can embrace what he teaches, the more that you can learn to trust him and, if you like, have his world view, the more you'll experience peace uh, and confidence in the way that you live. Okay? So I'd say, rather than feeling guilty, just work it more and more trying to understand why he says what he hears and, and embrace the truth that he gives us. isn't it better to just accept that we're going to die and live in light of that truth? Um, isn't it better to just accept that we're going to die and to live in light... Well, it depends whether or not you want to include Jesus in the resurrection. In one sense, I've accepted that I'm going to die, right? but it's it's which worldview do you bring? So I, I can understand if, that, if the Russian man has... Uh, the worldview of being an atheist, if, if he's, there's no supernatural, I can understand what it is that he's trying to do. Okay? And I, I don't think it's going to work, and I'd say there's a 50-50 chance that it's a scam as well. Um, do you really want to trust your eternity to the internet? Um, ABS, Census Night, all that. Anyway, you spend your eternity hoping someone doesn't pull that particular plug out. Anyway, um, uh, it, it, the thing that made, I think the difference is, Now, sorry, a lot of the population would say that Christians are dreamers as well. But it does all come back like the Apostle Paul says did Jesus rise from the dead? And if he did, it's like a peg driven into history that you can hold on to. And how would we know? Well, there's something transformed those fiercely monotheistic first century Jewish people. Something transformed them from a bunch of cowards who ran away when their hero was arrested to the power-packed preachers who literally went out and changed the world preaching that this crucified carpenter was God himself now I've I've read a lot and I've looked at a lot of different theories I can't find anything that explains that change other than this man really was who he said he was and really did what he said he did so that's kind of how you frame the question did he rise Uh, if he didn't let's go sign up with Dimitri if he did I'm backing him uh, we've probably got time for one more question. I've got one more to come for the One, do want to give a chance to the floor, if there are any, any other questions out there. Todd. Um, uh, Todd. Uh, in Genesis, it, um, the ancestors of Noah are given quite long periods of life. Yes. And then just before the flood, where it talks about how bad society had become, uh, it also talks about in the same chapter, I think, no, chapter 6, um, that God would limit man's life to 120 years. Yes. Is there any suggestion that longevity have been part of the problem of the wickedness of man? Uh, yeah. The from from yeah from Adam through to uh, Noah, the uh the, the people explain their lifespans are very long, and and they decrease. Uh, in chapter six, as God looked at the at the world, and every inclination of the thoughts of humanity was only evil all the time. And the world was filled with violence. There's a line in there that says then that God decided that the lifespan of humanity would just be 120 years. What I'm not sure about is, is he saying that God will reduce 120, or is that the time it took Noah to build the ark? I think it's ambiguous. But what you do see is, from the Garden of Eden, down to the patriarchs, by the time you get to Genesis 12, you've got Abraham. Abraham at age 70, 75 is an old man. So I... I'm not I'm not exactly sure what to make of the really long lifespans, but I suspect what it is is Genesis showing us the further you get away from the Garden of Eden and that and that spiritual life, the further you get away from that, the shorter lifespans get. Uh, that's that's the decline. And then you get to what we might call like history that we know of that we've dug up by Abraham, yeah, an old man at age seventy. Now they live into their hundreds, but they you know their their lifespans are comparable to ours. So 120, could be how long it took Noah to build the ark, could be God saying you'll limit lifespans. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.